This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Here, I learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. It seems Simon Gosworth is a riverside name these days. Originally from England, Simon was brought to America by Rio Products, where he eventually worked his way up to the company's marketing manager. He is the face behind Rio's modern spay casting DVD, the author behind two successful spay casting books, and a world-class instructor renowned for his proficient teaching style and casting ability. He is also one hell of an angler and an all-around great guy. I met with Simon on one of his recent circuits to see if I could coax him to share some of his life with Anchored's listeners. Really relaxed. Do I? I feel like I need a bigger sofa here for my long legs. Did you want to put your wallet over here so that you have more room? I'll just <laughs> put it down there. It's a much better place. Okay, good. Yeah. Now, now I feel like a, a Roman god. I just need some <laughs> grapes being fed to me. Along <laughs> my chaise longue. You're kind of like an English Cleopatra. Is that good or bad? Not That's so good. No, but you look good. You look good playing the part. <sighs> Damn it. <laughs> Let's uh, let's start with, really, I just kind of want to get to know about you better. And I know that you hate talking about yourself. And it is a tricky conversation with you because we are such good friends and because I do want to chat with you about all these amazing personal things, but I don't want to overstep my boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What I want that. to do, yeah, anytime. What I want to do, though, is just kind of let people who have uh, heard of Simon Gosworth, the caster and the real man and mm. just give them a better insight into who you are and kind of where you came from well my dim and distant past was 
uh, an Englishman, obviously, uh, you can tell by the accent, which seem, a lot of people seem to think I'm Australian, which now obviously you've got the ear so you can tell that I don't have an Australian accent. You probably never thought I had an Australian accent. No. You're one of the few who didn't, which yeah. is great. I get that too much in, in America. I questioned where you were from there for a while, because you drink yeah. scotch. I mean, I'm... True. My mum's Scottish. My dad's English. I didn't know. They separated when I was a toddler. So I lived in England. I lived in Scotland. So um, your mum stayed in Scotland. My mum stayed in Scotland. My wife's Scottish. My first wife was Scottish. So there's an awful lot of Scottish blood and heritage in me. And there's a lot of Scotch whiskey in me. So you obviously have a tuned ear because you can hear... A bit of scotch in it. I think it's like with every accent. If you sit down with a bunch of Irish people, for some reason you start having an Irish accent. Yeah. And it's like, what? <laughs> How did that happen? But I don't know what it is. But so when I sit down with my wife and my wife's parents or my mum, stepdad, then then I tend to have much more of a lilt. Yeah. Uh, and then when sense. I from Devon, my, you know, my home area of England is a, is the West Country of England, which is a, a very rural farming area. There's not a lot going for it. It's a long way from London, it's way down the southwest peninsula. Right. It's got rugby and fishing is about all there is. A bit of tourism, um, and there the Devon accent is a real uh, a thick kind of colloquial country accent that is uh, that I did have a bit more of before I moved to America, and it's. <laughs> I've tried to deliberately speak, enunciate a little bit clearer. I see. Than, than yeah, the West I think Country you're very accents. clear. So your dad stayed in England. Yep. And who brought you up? My dad. My dad and stepmom. Okay. So, so it's a quite an unusual thing. Yeah. I never quite got to the bottom of why. Because most kids go with their mum. Right. But, but you stayed with dad. Stayed with dad. My sister and I stayed with my dad. So I'm a sister and she's two years younger than me. Um, we stayed with our, our dad in, in, in England. Uh, as I said, I'm not sure why, but we did. And it's uh, life is a, a wonderful series of paths uh, that, uh, to me, I don't know where they go. Uh, I'm not a believer in fate and stuff like that. I think, you know, the paths, you, you obviously make your future and stuff like that. I don't think this, you're fated to, anything's fated to happen. Because I lived with my dad in England, when my dad started a fly fishing school, I started to learn fly fishing. If right. I moved with my mum and lived with her, then... Her dad was a professional golfer and a golf club maker, and I might have played golf. I don't know. This is really fascinating. Your dad was a fisherman. Is your dad still alive? Yep, he is. Okay, so dad's yeah. a fisherman. Yeah, not anymore. He gave that up when he retired in 1990. Just put everything down. Okay, I'll get back to that. So he was a, a spay caster, though, was he not? Uh, originally not, but he was a fly ca- a trout caster, and then... His background was maths and physics, so he was a he was a teacher of maths and physics at a, a public boys' school. So he taught maths and physics, and he understood the physics of casting, I think, better than a lot of casts. He was a very good early teacher in the early days, coined a lot of terminology that most people that you know, is common use now. Um, a lot of the physics of casting and analyzed. So he was a very good analyst and a teacher of fly fishing. He started a school when I was eight, in 1972. Were there a lot of fly fishing schools around no, at that time? No, there was four or five, very, very few uh, in England. I don't know about the rest of the world, but in England yeah. there were four or five. And you were around eight years old? Yeah, yeah. When did he start teaching spay casting? So we lived in Kent at the time, which is southeast England, uh, south of London. And uh, Kent is an area full of lakes. And so he started a fishing school off lake fishing. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of rivers there, but it's quite flat ground. One of the fruit gardens of, of, of England is, is Kent. And the ground is fairly flat, so the rivers are fairly slow. They warm up a lot. They're mostly coarse fish, very few trout. Mm-hmm. So we'd go down to the river every now and then and, and regular fly fish for trout, mostly caught charb and bream and 
uh, a bunch of species like that that would be considered a coarse fish, and then every now and then you catch some kind of trout. And his passion, because his school got to be fairly successful, then in 77, so five years after he started the school, we moved down to Devon. So you were 13. So I was 13, yeah, very good. Very astute. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> it's not that late tonight. <laughs> that's not true. That is true. Uh, and we moved there purely because the river's there. He wanted to expand the fly fishing school to teach people river fishing and river casting. And then we came across salmon in the rivers in England and in the West Country. Yeah. And so he started to understand and develop spay casting on his own at that stage. I don't, I don't know if there's anybody who would talk, taught Spay casting in those days. Obviously, mm. there'd been spay casting for a hundred years at yeah, that point, right? Absolutely. Was it something that had started to slowly drop off, and your dad brought it back, or was it just that he was in a completely different region? I think probably different region. I mean, when you'd go up to Scotland uh, to fish, you'd always have the gillies there that would mm-hmm. teach you somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a couple of people. So Arthur Oglesby was a very famous salmon angler. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of else. Hugh Falkus was a salmon mm. angler. Um, Jack Martin, Peter Mackenzie Phillips. There were some very prestigious North England yeah. schools that taught spade casting as much as, as single-handed casting. So there, there were still people who did teach spade casting. Down in the West Country we were, I don't think there was anybody. Um, so, and what's really not, not fascinating, I guess it's another one of those paths... So in England, I taught, my father and I, we both taught just trout fishing. But when did you, at 13, did you have any interest? Were you fly fishing at this point? Yes, oh, absolutely. Passionate. Were you thinking about teaching fly fishing at this yes. point? At what age did you decide that you wanted to maybe get into cahoots with your dad and start teaching? Oh, I remember the night. I remember the exact moment when it happened. <laughs> it's, uh, he would encourage me and he said, oh, you know, see if you can spot what's wrong with that guy's forecasting and la la la. And so gradually, from the age of 13, 14, uh, I started to assist him in some capacity, early capacities. And then 14, 15, I would go down and, and he started getting more and more busy. Uh, and so I would start to teach weekends. I'd teach for him at pathetically juvenile age. <laughs> Uh, and then, and so all that time, so in England, at thir- the age of 13, you start to choose your career. You sit down with your careers master and they look at the subjects you're good at and the subjects you like and they talk with you and, you, and they, they work out what your life sh- could be right. if you chose the right path. So you could go to the right colleges and universities yeah. and stuff like that. And so my chosen career at 13 was an Air Force pilot. Uh, I thought, brilliant, this is, that sounds good. I like the sound of that. I had the... the you needed maths and English and physics and chemistry, and those were the subjects I liked at school. Um, and so I was going to be an Air Force pilot. What What was so exciting about that for you? I don't know. I think I, there was nothing else I, that seemed to mount up, whether the things I was interested in and the, and the school subjects that I liked. I don't think there was uh, much else I could have really done. Uh, I remember Mr. Vanderpant. He was my school's <laughs> coach, school that master. Is real, Vanderpant? Yeah, awesome. he was my schoolmaster. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember the conversation. He said, and we went through all the questions in the end of the 20-minute interview. He said, well, here's a couple of things here. What on this list looks good to you? And I said, uh, Air Force pilot looks pretty good to me. <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> so that was my, my career, planned career. And then at 16, in England, you leave school at 16, and it was September the 30th, 1980, when I left school, because um, I hadn't had my 17th birthday. My dad said, right, 
you've just about scraped through with enough basic qualifications that you could go to college. You have to study hard because you're nowhere near. Yeah, I was. I didn't. I hated school. I had the barest of qualifications. I had a couple of O levels, and that was it. And he said, and you could go to college, you could go to university, and then you could office to school, and you could. Have, you're looking at another eight or nine years, seven years, eight years of education before you can fly and be a pilot, or you could teach fly fishing with me. And I go, oh, thanks, Dad. <laughs> Pack up my school bags. I'm never going back to school. <laughs> that was that. Yeah. So that was that. And so we had this talk, literally the day we broke up school, September the 30th. And um, so that was it. Then I started teaching fly fishing for him full time. Was that always his plan, do you think? It might have been. It might have been. Or maybe it was just an opportunity. Uh, you know, I never, I, I really got depth to ask him if that was a long-term plan. Or I, I guess there must have been some hope in it. I, and I hope my son does something I enjoy too. And, yeah. and maybe one day he'll do the same thing with me. So I think there's that paternal hope that you're son in particular does something that you enjoy and have a good life and therefore wants him to do the same thing so I think he had that hope maybe not a plan but I think he had that hope and so he hired me <laughs> I started teaching fly fishing so the school must have been pretty busy the school was busy um what was I, it was I was right in the deep end because a couple months after I started teaching for him we were out on our on the tournament casting field casting just practicing for tournaments and in those days I, I was um, competing in the there's 11 casting events there's fly casting and there's bait casting and there's accuracy and there's bait casting distance and there's fixed spool and there's multiplier there's one hand spay casting there's uh, one handed trout casting two handed overhead casting there's a, a selection of 11 disciplines and one of the disciplines is a distance casting with an 18 gram plug on a, on a multiplier reel my dad threw it up there and he got caught in this overhead wire um or I threw it, I can't remember who threw it. Got caught in this overhead wire. And the overhead wire is about 20 feet above the ground. And so my dad takes this long salmon rod that's 17 foot long to knock this plug off the wire. The wire contained 33,000 volts of electricity. Yeah. And what the rod got about two feet away from it, and this huge arc jumped off the wire, straight down his rod. I was standing about three feet away from him. It blew both of us to the ground. I was in this complete daze of fuzz with all the stuff that was going around, but I wasn't shocked, and he was burned to crisp. You know, his, his feet were burned to a crisp, and his hands were burned to crisp, oh and he was in God. a terrible state. And so, you know, luckily he survived. Um, off went to, he went to hospital, and just to cut a long, boring story short, he was in hospital for three or four months. Oh, my God. And, you know, just having grafts, skin grafts, and repairing basically stuff. And so... That was me, the new instructor. You <laughs> the, ran the school? Well, my stepmom ran the school. I was just an employee teaching people, so I would take people out and teach and do all the lectures in the morning. And so stepmom, like dad, and yourself. Yeah. That's a serious family business. Yeah. Yeah, they had a, they had, they had a beautiful Georgian house, a five-bedroom Georgian house that the fishermen would stay with us for, the, for a bed and breakfast, and they would stay in that Georgian house. And we had a beautiful lecture facility downstairs and a fly-tying bar and rod-building facilities and so they, that was it. Are there still schools like that in England? Most schools are affiliated to um, hotels or some kind of accommodation. There's very few schools that will have accommodation, food, lodging, the whole work. Which is what you guys had. Which we had. Because the first thing that enters my mind when I hear a story like that is obviously that it's amazing. But also... I deal with enough people who don't even know how they're going to survive just by guiding, let alone being an instructor, let alone supporting their wives and their children off of it. Mm. 
I mean, obviously it worked out for you guys. Is that something that's viable today? Could you do that today? I think you could. I think if you are... Yes and no. I think if you're in a lucky enough position that you're an... These days there's so many instructors about, as you know. Right. That if you're not an established instructor and you're another one of the crowd, you might be absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. You don't have a name. You're one of the crowd. You charge $100 a day. There's no way to support a family. Right. So in those days, there were so few schools. We were full. The shortest class we ran was a three-day class. We called it casting and catching. And people would come in, and the first day, we just take them out in the river to learn to cast. Mm-hmm. Second day, we take them to a lake to learn them, show them basic lake fishing tactics. Third day, we take them to a river and learn. They learn river tactics. So they just learn a very basic three-day class. Um, the most popular classes were five-day classes. There was a five-day river trout class. There was a five-day lake trout class. There was a five-day salmon class. There was a five-day sea trout class. Those are the most popular ones. So people would come to five days. And then we had some seven-day classes, which were called general game fishing. And that was just lakes, rivers, salmon. It was everything. A bit of fly fishing, everything. Mm-hmm. And so people would come for a whole week holiday and stay with us for a week. And then arrive Sunday, leave Sunday, the next group come in. And they would do that for most of the season. So we were, we, we were very busy. We mm-hmm. had a lot of people. In fact, we were so busy... That my dad hired two more people, two more lads, and trained them up to be instructors. So we had myself and and my dad and two other instructors, Robin and Rob, um, as instructors. And when one of them left, he hired two more people to get instructors. So we were very busy. That is yeah. amazing. We had a lot of lot of people. We taught. Who did the marketing for the school? Oh, he did. He and my stepmom. How? I mean, this is before the internet. Yep. So it was all magazine ads. Uh, and my dad was a very smart business person. He. Uh, uh, he invited editors to come down, uh, and in those days, not many people did that. So, all of the fishing magazines and even the Daily Telegraph came down once and did a piece. And the editors would come down and they'd be wined and dined and taken out and learned to fly fish and would write them up. And so, he got a lot of business through these write ups. What was the um, It changed names a couple of times. It was the West of England School of Game Angling, was the first kind of real lengthy name. And then I can't remember what else it got changed to, but uh, I think that was the name it stayed at the most. And and so that was what we were. We just taught fly fishing. So how long did he stay and teach for? So he, well, in 1987, there was a big change. Um, his father was always, uh, he always believed that one of the best ways to make money was to buy run-down houses, build them up a bit, and let the value increase, and, and then move on. And so we moved... He, before I even started fly fishing, he bought what's called an oast house in Kent. Uh, and he did it up. It was an old bit of a ruin and you know, sold it for a lot of money. Moved down to Devon, bought this lovely Georgian house, did that up, sold that eventually in 1987. And bought a, a dilapidated, it might have been an old hotel, but it, he turned it into a sporting hotel. It was right on the banks of the river. So it had, I think, 12 or 14 bedrooms. When you say sporting hotel, do you mean like a lodge? Yeah, it was a hotel where people would come to fish. And then in the winter, then he hired somebody who was a, a shooting instructor. So right. in the winter, people would learn to shoot and wear traps and skeet. Did he hire ghillies too? Uh, we were the ghillies. The fishing instructors were also ghillies. So if people just wanted to come fish, then we would guide them. Wow, okay. Uh, Very and, smart. Yeah. Uh, so the winter was shooting. And again, my father had grand ambitions and grand thoughts. So he hired a chef who trained in the Savoy in London, a very good chef. We had exceptional wine cellar. Because you're, you're inviting or getting a lot of the, uh, 
upper class people from England were coming Especially down to this hotel there. and they have they, they want gourmet foods and wines and the best cognacs and stuff like that. And so he, he built up this, this hotel and this, this sporting hotel and I was the instructor and in the fishing and then we had at that stage we had Richard and Alex um, and myself and Robin we had four fly fishing instructors and then Cameron was the shooting instructor uh, and then my dad would fill in in either of those if, if one of them was busy so it was, it was a pretty busy sporting hotel it sounds like it's actually pretty lucrative business yeah I think it is did he start it because he loved it or because he saw that it was uh, you know something that could be profitable he started it because uh, he'd always taught, as I mentioned, maths and physics, and he'd, he'd like fly fishing. So he thought, one and one makes two, I'm going to teach fly fishing. So he started that. Because at the time, he was working for Honeywell, some kind of computer company. Mm-hmm. And I think he was pretty depressed with that life because these are those mainframe computers that are the size of a bedroom, you know, That's a two-bedroom. Right, yeah. So he'd sell those. and So he'd work for seven months without selling one. And then sold one in Uganda or somewhere like that and then he had some commission and it was just a horrendous life. Right. From what I I was too young to know but from still family stories and stuff. Yeah. And so when he got to the point of that's enough then he said I teach and I like fishing I'm going to teach fishing. Good for him. So that's how that started. And then he sold the school uh, so he bought the hotel in 1987 he sold the school in 1990 to retire um, sold the hotel. Was there an option for you to buy it? Uh, I bought the fishing business from him. And yeah. he sold the hotel to somebody And he else. sold the hotel to somebody else. And then I took over the, the fishing school and kept one of the instructors, Alex. And how so, old were you here? Uh, in 1987, so I'd have been, I think I was 24, yeah, 63. Yeah. Pretty young. 24, 25, something like that. So did he completely walk away from it? Or did yeah, he still have some hands down. on the reins? Yeah, put it down. Okay. Just gave it up. So just retired. I'm kind of afraid to ask what happened to the business. Um, the business was fine. I mean, I, I, I kept on Alex, as I said, and so... I took on the fly fishing school. And because we didn't have a sporting hotel, I just went to one of the, a, a local pub or a local hotel and just said to them, look, here I can bring you a lot of guests if you mm. will give me a couple of rooms to lecture in and sh- tackle shops and facilities like that. So we had our own little shop and, and, and they were very happy to do so. And so for the next eight years or nine years, I taught fly fishing. and Single and double. Single and double. Uh, mostly single. Got into stopped tournament casting got into competition fishing um, kept Alex as an employee and because we didn't have the business if you like of, of accommodation and fine wines and food and restaurant like that so every year in the winter I would find some kind of winter job so I, yeah, I had to pay my mortgage somehow mm-hmm. because there was no uh, the fishing season ended in October to start about April so I, I mean I did I did so many things. I think the first year, uh, because of my experience at my dad's hotel, I worked at receptionist for a, another hotel. And then each year, when the fishing season got towards starting again, I quit that job, went back to my fishing school and did that for a number of years. So I, I did that. I, I was a night gas attendant in a, in a petrol station. I worked at a, a wedding album factory that took leather and scraped it and made it into wedding albums. And the worst job I ever had was, was at some paint factory in Torrington where I lived. And this rotating conveyor belt thing came round with all these <laughs> vertical rods hanging down and I had this square painted in concrete which is about three foot by three foot and I had to stay in the square for 12 hours you literally had to stay in the yeah. box this because is like this, my worst nightmare yeah. okay. I, oh my god I was oh, hateful this is another one of those paths that I, I, I'm just 
my life is woven by paths. At that time, I was working for, as a consultant for a travel, travel company called Frontiers, which is big in America, and they had, they had this London office. The Frontiers, that's still existing today? Yep. Pennsylvania, Wexford, they were in Wexford, so they had a London office. Were you working for them independently from your school, or was this? I was just a consultant to them, so I helped them out and with uh, the old trip. I would lead a trip, or I would write some information for them about them, or advise about tackle or stuff like that. Just uh, I don't even know I was paid. I might have been paid a pittance or something. I can't recall. But I had this. I've been at this paint factory job for about three weeks. Um, and when Tarquin, who ran the England office, the London office, phoned me up and said, "Ah, Simon, we have." Um, we're opening up a lodge in Argentina for sea trout, and we'd like an English person to go down and guide. Just because uh, of the language, or it was because it was all it was all they were, they were going to draw on the London population, uh, and so they wanted an English person who kind of understood English eccentricities and English culture and stuff like that. Were you a well-known personality? Yeah, fairly. I mean, I, I you know I competed a lot and I'd written a lot of articles and stuff and DVDs and videos and done quite a few TV shows. I mean, yeah, to some extent it was. Was your dad um, famous? Lesser. Uh, he, he didn't... Um, he did write a, quite a lot of articles. In fact, he and I wrote a lot of articles together. Um, so he was definitely famous. In fact, funny enough, I spoke to somebody today at the Casting Ponds today who said, who, who talked about my dad and had read some of my dad's things and he said, was was that your father, John Gorsworth? I said, yeah, that was my dad. And so he, he had... Done a little bit, which was part of his promotion. So yeah, he was he was definitely um, in those days, as far as people go, famous. That is excellent. So so yeah, so Tarquin rang me up and said, um, "We really would like to send somebody from England down to Argentina to guide on the Sea Trout River for three to four months a year. You'd go down uh, December the thirty first, and you'd come back about the end of March, early April." What river was this on? This is on the Rio Grande in okay. Tierra de Fuego. Yeah, and so. He said, um, do you have a job at the moment? I said, no. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Sign me up. Like, I really don't have a job. I really don't have a job. <laughs> nope. So, uh, again, lucky me, the path came up. I jumped on the path. I went down to Argentina. So for three seasons, I guided on the Rio Grande down there in Tierra Fuego for these Ciron Browns and stopped. You know, I, I got engaged. Uh, to my, my wonderful wife, Scott's lass. And in 98, when we got married, she, she said, when I proposed to her, she said, I'll, I'll very happily marry you, but you're going to have to stop going to Argentina for three to four months at a time because that's just not a life for me. And I totally understood that. Where did you meet? Uh, like I met my other wife in a pub okay. <laughs> in Scotland on a fishing holiday. So, okay, so your first wife, this was before, so you must have married the first time really young. Uh, I married in 90. So, 26. That was your first... Oh, your first wife, you were yeah. 26. Oh, okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, so divorced... We got divorced pretty soon after. I married my current wife, Susan, you met. Yeah, 98. Great. Got it, got it, got it. And that was... that was Susan was the one who said, you know, that's enough. If you're going to... If we're going to get married, you can't... I'd guide in Argentina. Right. And so, I'd met Jim Vincent at the time, who owned Rio. Uh, again, one of those funny random paths. Somebody I taught spay casting back in about... about when did Jim first contact me? I think about 91 or 92. He was fishing the Dean and camping on the Dean. As he did, yeah. As, yeah, as he did. And he saw this Englishman was throwing out these long spay lines and casts like this. And Jim got talking to him. He said, oh, that's wonderful stuff. Where'd you learn that? And he said, oh, it's spay casting. And he's a 
very common in the UK and everybody uses them. And Jim got fascinated by the spade casting thing. He said, where did you learn that from? He said, I learned it from this English chap, Simon Goresworth. And, and so this Englishman called Bo, he gave Jim my contact details. And Jim, being a passionate about fishing as he was, he wrote to me in those days. And yeah. we wrote back and forth for about four years about spade casting. He just me trying to kind of educate him as much as I could about spade casting and him writing articles and then sending them to me to review and correct and that kind of stuff. And then we met in 95 in Canada, up in BC. We went to the Anarco, fished this beautiful clear Anarco, caught a few steelhead. Then I stayed on for a week, met Jim and Smithers, and we fished the Babine and the Kispiox. And that was the first time I met Jim. Were you there with Frontiers? No, uh, no. at that stage I I wasn't with the Frontiers. I was with a different travel company. But you were with the travel company yes. leading like leading almost a hosted group? Yeah, hosted group. Got it, okay. Uh, i got to quite ponder on why I did that. Maybe that was before Frontiers. I think that was before Frontiers. Yes, it was, because it was, that was 95 when I met Jim, so that was before Frontiers. And so I met Jim, and and I got off this plane, I didn't know what Jim looked like, you know, there was no email around. Walked off this plane, and he didn't know what I looked like, and he was looking for some old, grizzled English chap. Yeah. In tweeds and stuff like that, because we'd been corresponding for, at that stage for about six, five or six years or something. And so he thought I was some old dude, <laughs> and I was you know, this young, poxy little kid. <laughs> well, I wasn't a kid. No, I'd been older than that when I'd been 32, 31. Still, pretty Still a kid. Still, Still a yeah. kid. Anyway, so Jim and I fished together for about a week. We got, uh, got on really well, and he said, if you ever want a proper job, contact me. I've just set up this line company called Rio. And he said, if you want a, ever want a good job, just give me, a, give me a call. And so three years later, when my wife said, we're going to get married, and, uh, or she said, yes, let's get married, but stop guiding. I remember that conversation. I phoned up Jim, and we stayed in touch some time in the interim. I said, well, Jim, if your offer's solid, let me come and, you know, come and work for you for a couple of months and see if we, we work together very well. So I flew out in, after we got married in 98, I flew out in 99, the beginning of 99, and worked for Jim for about three months in Idaho at Rio. And... Uh, the rest is history then. My wife and I moved over in 99, sold the school. Well, we didn't sell the school because I was a school. So we, we actually should have sold the school, should have sold something, but we didn't. Naivety. Just left everything. I could, there was nobody to sell the school to because I was a teacher. And um, your dad is still wanting had to no interest, time. didn't want to teach or anything like that. Were you afraid of disappointing him and leaving, you know, his legacy or leaving the no. school that he'd started? No, I didn't He think just so. wanted he, you to follow your heart and he'd go. Lost, yeah. He'd lost interest in the in the school and uh, you know, said, "Whatever's good for you. If, yeah. you, if you, if living in America is good for you, that's great." And did, so, did you like Idaho? It was cold. I mean, the reason, Jim said to come out in January because you're going to experience an Idaho winter. Okay. And so you're smart with that. Experience an Idaho winter. See if you can live in Idaho in the winter. That's the worst time. So we did, and we, and we were there. I mean, we moved to '99. In April 2000, we had uh, a phone call, a letter from the immigration authority saying. Your visa's been refused. You have 30 days to get out of the country. What? So yeah. Su- Susan had already come with you yep. at this point. Yeah. And you'd been there for a year? November 99 to April, so about six months, five months. And was that something that you guys didn't take care of before you moved there? Sort of. Uh, Jim had hired an immigration attorney to, to get us there. And it was some jumped-up New York attorney who really didn't do any homework or didn't care, just wanted to check. And so... We had an interview on the phone, and he said, why are you coming over? And I told him to work for Rio. Uh, I said, what do you, what's your history? What do you do in England? I said, I teach fly fishing, go to fly fishing school. And so the visa he applied for was, whatever the initials are, O-1, A-B, whatever yeah. it is. 
but it was a teacher. And so the moment the authorities looked at my school, leaving school at 16 with a, two of the lowest qualifications ever, they said, there's no way that person's a teacher. It's a crock of crap. Um, so they rejected it. So in April, we just shipped all our worldly belongings over to America. So we flew back to, we had 30 days to get out. So out we got, flew back to England, stored all our stuff in, uh, in, in Idaho. And I started teaching for Sportfish, which is a fly shop chain in England. Okay. Uh, taught, taught for them for six months. Got a different attorney. They s- interviewed me. They said, there's no way you would ever get in as a teacher. You can get in as a sportsman. You have you know, a name, a person with athletic ability or whatever the, the visa is. Yeah. And, and so they applied for a visa of extraordinary something or other. Talent or... I, yeah, I know. Whatever that thing is. Mm-hmm. And I got approved. So we moved back in January 2001. So Jim didn't want to let you go? No. In any way, shape, no, or form? No. Was what nice. was your actual role with Rio? Uh, dog's body. <laughs> the time. What? General dog's body. What is that? Yeah. Oh, you don't know that saying? That no. must be an English saying. So a dog's body is, you do everything. You're a kind of lowly paid, you do a bit of everything. But why did, I mean, he could have hired anybody to do anything. Why yeah. did he want you so bad? I think we got on well together at the state. I think he, he, he liked my casting. Um... And so, so certainly I helped, in, even in the early days, with his on, on, on a casting, teaching his casting, and working with from some fly shops and getting them to get in, interested in the spay casting and stuff like that. So he's, I think that's how he saw me there. So I do some teaching spay casting, and I do some of the marketing stuff, and I go to the shows and do the show. Just with him. Rio. Yeah. This is before Rio was affiliated with Sage? Yes. Okay. Just when Jim still had it. Yeah. So I did that. Was it a small company? Sorry, yeah. was it a small company? It was uh, relatively small. Like how many of you guys? Um, I, I would say there's probably 40 employees at the time. Okay, okay. 35 employees, 40. Yeah. We only had one fly line machine, had eight heads, we could only make eight fly lines at the time. Now we have, I think, three times that number. I mean, it's, you know, it's grown, Rio's grown. Right. And so that was it. And so I came, we came over in 2001. And what's always been not a baffling thing to me but what's always been in this thing to me is in England I was pretty well known for my trout fishing my trout casting I wrote loads of articles on trout casting I did lots of videos on trout fishing techniques and casting and uh, I taught single-handed casting and I competed in the tournament casting and I fished for England in you know world championship stuff all trout stuff and then I moved to America and Jim's so interested in spade casting, he said, well, what's this spade casting thing? And, and show me, and, and let's put a video together, and let's design some spay lines. And, and suddenly over here, everyone goes, even today, people say, oh, can you cast a single-handed rod then? Do you do some yeah. single-handed casting? Pigeonhole. You know what? They do the same thing to me. Oh, I bet. And I mean, obviously, you and I, there's no comparison. But it's amazing to me that people only see you catching, you know, steelhead or salmon and fishing a double-hand rod. And they seem to assume that you don't fish a single hand rod or do yeah. any sort of saltwater fishing. Yeah. So to this day, you are still the double hand guy. Uh, in America, absolutely. Yeah, you are the double hand guy. And somehow that spread. You know, down here, all they asked me to do when I'm down here is spay casting stuff. And probably because it's such a unique fishery or style of casting in anywhere in the world, except in Scotland and Britain, that again down here there's. How many, I don't know how many people teach one-handed casting. There's, there's not many certified casters. I think it's four or five MCIs, and there's maybe 10 or 12 CCIs, and there's probably another 
10 or 12 non-qualified instructors, but there's nobody, well, there's one person that's two-handed casting. So again, I think it's just that I happen to be lucky enough that somehow I got specialized into spay casting and somehow that spay casting is this, still this unique aspect and so therefore I'm seen as a draw. And you also I've... happen to be really good at it. So it also <laughs> kind of goes into play. I, I enjoy teaching, I have to tell you that much. And so I've always, I've always tried to be a better teacher. And so I do a lot of casting demonstrations um, and to me a casting demonstration what I've found in my limited life is that a casting demonstration that gets the best feedback is a simple lesson rather than look what I can do. Mm-hmm. You know, and unfortunately, I watch a lot of demonstrations and people go, oh, wow, look at these long lines, look at this line here, and they show off. And they are showing off. And, you know, that's a lot of a wow factor. But I don't, from my minuscule experience, I see that the... Feedback I get when I do a casting demonstration just run through the simplest basics and the rawest, crudest, basic terminology possible. People dig it and they go, "Oh, that was pretty cool. I learned something with that." And so, I, I've always tried to be a better teacher than a caster um, through analysis and analogies and terminologies and things like that. Uh, and my dad, when he was teaching, he one of the earliest lessons he said to me. I mean, probably when I was 16, literally, when I started teaching for him. And something I've, I've lived by ever since. And he, his, his motto is, was, there's no such thing as a stupid student, it's a stupid instructor. And, he, and it's always stuck with me. And I've always thought, absolutely, truly believe that 100%. I don't think there's a single person in the world, that I, and I've taught hundreds of people and, and maybe thousands of people, and sure, there's some people who don't get it as quick as somebody else or mm-hmm. aren't naturally gifted. But I, I seem to be able to, and I think anybody can, not me, I, there seems to be a way to teach them. You maybe go and give them a softer rod, you overline the rod, you change analogies or something. And so I, I've try, I try to live by that. People seem to say that the, they learn something from my lessons, and I, I try and do something that way. I totally agree. I don't know if that makes sense. You taught me how to snake roll. I remember. Yeah. I do remember, down on the sandy. to this day, I still will take exactly how you explained it to me and explain it to my students. You drew a picture in my head, Hmm. and that picture was easy to trace the rod tip to. It was brilliant. Pictures are great. It was so simple. It was so simple, and you were not intimidating. And you have a little bit of humor, too, whenever you're teaching. It was really Probably good. had half a glass of whiskey. We actually had half we a had, bottle we of whiskey. We had a couple, of actually, glasses of whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But it was excellent. You, you teach really, really well. So Thank you. Yeah. You should be proud of it. So then in Rio, what happens then? Were you de- designing spay lines with him? Yeah. Um, when Jim sold the company. So Jim sold Rio in November 2005. So okay. 10 years ago. Um, long time so Farbank which owned Sage and Reddington at that time bought bought Rio as a third string to their bow and then Jim left and the first couple of years he was a consultant Um, when Jim left both Jim and I were doing most of the line designs Uh, Marlin who's our our head production man if you like he was doing a lot of the line designs so between the three of us we did designs I think I've done all the space stuff Um, Marlin's probably done I think Marlin's done all the saltwater stuff between us we've done most of the trout stuff the stuff that's still there yep and he was there back then, too. Yep, he started before me. I think Marlin started in 95 or 96. So he was one of the earliest employees, one of the first employees that Jim hired. Mm-hmm. So he was one of the first employees. And he was the master brains behind making fly lines, Marlin is, for us. You were designing 
the spay lines. What was the first spay line that Rio put out? Well, the first one that Rio put out that Jim designed was the wind cutter. So when did you start designing? Well, I, Jim and I worked on... So the next line came out, Rio came out with was the accelerator, which was a very long-headed line. And that was, again, that was a purely a Jim. I didn't do any collaboration. I think all that happened before I even worked for Jim. Okay. The first line I, I worked on with Jim was the mid-spay. Um, ah, right, right. And that came out. And then, and then as I said, when Jim retired and got out of the thing, then I did all the spay lines. So the first line, I, I guess when he retired... The AFS, the, the old Scandinavian head AFS was the first one. Oh my one god, everything is clicking. That's just so funny. Because I actually had a mid-spay too. I couldn't cast it either. It yeah. was totally my casting. But, but, do you remember at the Sandy, you had those AFS lines. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, and you gave me a couple yeah. samples. And you were actually, I remember, you were real happy with them. And yeah. they cast really well. That was your yeah. first real line that you had yeah. done through Rio. Yeah. Oh, it makes sense now. That was. Got it. And so, and of course, I was proud of it then because yeah, it worked out. Damn it was right. casting thing. That makes sense. Okay. So then, but, then what? Then, then nothing really. I mean, you know, then, then we had Jim and I, you know, we got to know various people like Scott O'Donnell, Mike McCune, Ed Ward, and Jim Fish for those guys. And they were explaining how their homemade heads were so beneficial for winter steel headers and That's they right. designed the Skagit lines so those mm-hmm. boys designed the Skagit lines the original Skagit what people still call the beer can the yellow beer can just a level chunk uh-huh. so they designed that um, yeah because I used to put a big chunk of lead core on my wind cutter which now in retrospect no. maybe this is why I couldn't cast them but I would be putting on you know weighted flies and big chunks of, of, of lead yeah and uh, checks the tungsten tip if I yeah. could find them. And okay, so then you started working with the winter steelheaders, and this is yeah. how the Skagit. That's how the Skagit came about. They did all that, and so some lines we tweak and evolve fishing styles, if you like, change, and our line understanding change, line manufacturing abilities change. Yeah, mm-hmm. the machines become more controllable, and so I. I most of my job for Rio is not the line design. Most of my job is the, they call it the brand manager, the marketing manager. So mm-hmm. the advertising and the, the, the product videos and the packaging and the website and the social media and stuff. So that, most of my job is that stuff now because you couldn't have a job and just design lines. You'd never be employed. Uh, and so I do much less of the line design uh, and more of the marketing stuff, uh, and then every now and then we'll work on some line designs and right. two or three line designs. And but you started with something that you loved, and you followed yeah the paths and ended up here. But I ha- I've had the right paths, and the paths are the people you meet. You mm-hmm. know, if I hadn't met taught Bo, I would never have met Jim. And if I hadn't, uh, funny enough, this Bo person again somehow got me into Frontiers. And if I hadn't gone to Frontiers, I wouldn't have gone to Tierra del Fuego, and you know all these little randomly weird paths in life that, uh, that are that. So, yeah, no, it, it, I, I, I'm, I'm a very lucky position. I know there's a lot of people who would like to do what I do, uh, and, I, and I, I count myself extraordinarily lucky that I can do stuff like on this trip, come to Australia, and mm-hmm. uh, pr- ostensibly and primarily to promote the Rio brand and do talks and get people aware about the Rio brand, but also to, to fish. I like fishing. You, what? You yeah. do? <laughs> yeah, what? You don't like casting? And you're an excellent angler. I mean, yeah. I fished with you on the Dean for the week. Yeah, I love, love fishing. Do you get that lots? Do you get people saying that you can cast but you can't fish? 
I don't think so. I don't see that too much. I've I think people judge that on, on how you fish. I mean, that's, that's a good question. I, maybe people say that behind my back, so I don't think I'm, nobody's really said it to me. I mean, let's say in, in gossip circles, they might just they might say that. Oh, you can no, I've never heard it. I just, I, I remember that I was on a trip with Steve Ray Jeff, who is fantastic, obviously. Yeah, that's and amazing. one of the guides who has no filter said something about, wow, Steve, I can't believe how amazing you are at fishing. You're an incredible angler. Everybody always says that you can just cast, but you can't fish. And oh. Ray Jeff's such a gentleman. He just said, oh, is that so? And he just went back. And he just he just kept fishing. But uh, that always kind of really bothered me, obviously not just because it was rude, but because it was so unfair just to assume that somebody doesn't know how to fish because they're such a great caster. Yeah. And I always wondered if you had ever... I had the same problem as Ray Jeff because you are on par for me anyway with a Ray Jeff. You're, you know, the equivalent to a Ray Jeff. But having fished with you, you just blew me away, and I just didn't know if that was ever an obstacle that you. Well, first of all, I'm nowhere near on par with Ray Jeff. Neither, <laughs> neither brothers. They are extraordinarily good casters. I mean, they are amazing. Both guests. world champions. It's, it's stuff like that. And I've never ever been that good. I'd aspire. I'd love to be that good. Um, and I think I could be if I spent. All the hours of the day practicing, I think I understand enough the physics and the dynamics of casting to, to get good enough not not to be a world champion but to be a better caster for sure. Um, so uh, thank you for putting me in that bracket, but that's not not quite the case. Um, but as I say, I, I don't think as anybody has ever said to me that. I think jokingly people say that, and I I, I flip it around in my demonstrations. Um, you know, I, I tell people when I'm doing my casting, one of the reasons I like spay casting is because I don't catch fish and therefore I like to have an inter- entertaining way of casting. Right, right. So I flip it around that way and I say, if I do ever hook a fish, I break the bloody thing off so I can carry on my casting because I still, I'm, I'm still a, a disciple of the cast. I, I, I absolutely adore casting. And so flippantly I say that, but in my heart, I absolutely adore fishing. Yeah. I and I like, I like to work out what to do and I like to catch a fish if I can there's an awful lot of fishing out there to be done that I know nothing about you know I'd like there's so many places to go and so many fisheries to experience and I'd like to do them all and experience them I I'm a very I wouldn't say it's not insular is not quite the right word but maybe uh, and purist isn't quite the right word but I have a very narrow focus of what I enjoy in my fishing what do you enjoy in your fishing well I enjoy with the trout rod I, I love targeting a rising fish obviously with a dry fly I adore swinging a team of spiders across a, a riffle for trout. And that probably, I don't know if that boils down from the fact that most of that, with that style of fishing, I can spare cast on my one-handed rod. So maybe it's, I get the passion out of that, of um, from half of it from spade casting and half of it from just this wonderful tug. So in the trout world, the dry fly, swinging soft tackles, I like stripping streamers from a bank to big, to big browns. I am not a nymph person at all. I, I don't like fishing nymphs and indicators like that. I find that, of course, if there's a skill to it, you still have to read the water and set the hook and cast your fly out there, but I find that less skillful than the others. I love spay casting and swing for salmon and steelhead because I, th- and I think a lot of it, if I really analyze it, I mean, like saltwater fishing for bones, when you're, all of the things, whether you're targeting a brown trout with a rising or a dry fly or a bonefish on a flat or spay casting soft tackles or spay casting a salmon rod, all of it, if in the rawest analysis, is it's a casting skill. It goes all the way back to that. Those ways are ways of fishing that 
are generally rewarded by a good cast. Mm -hmm. And maybe not so much the nymph, you can just drop it in somewhere out there, or you float, drop it by a drift boat and go down 200 yards and wait for it to bob under. Mm -hmm. So I think those, for me, I think that my, my pleasure comes from the fact that there's a skill element to the cast. Coming up, Simon speaks with me about the Rio DVD, the most common questions he hears about fly lines, and his role as a marketing manager. Do you think that you're a better single or double hand caster? Because I'll be honest with you, when I'm talking about Ray Jeff stuff, I'm talking about double handers. I I've seen you cast a single hand. You're you're incredible. But when I am associating you as being one of the best, I am talking. I'm totally being one of those people in the public. I'm putting you in the double hand um, category. Do you think you're a better single or double hand caster? I think I'm better known for that. Of course. Because there's that but small world. What do you think? What do I think? Am I better spaycast? A single-hander or two-hander? I think probably equal. I think I'm, I'm, I'm decent at both. I think that I can, hold, I can certainly hold my own with that. I mean, I'm not... There's way better single-handed casters and way better spaycasters around the world. So I, I'm not the best in the world at one or the other. I'm not the worst in the world at one or the other, so I'm in a happy place where I am a good caster. I, I can I can say that with some confidence. Thank you. <laughs> it was painful to you get it out of me. You bastard. <laughs> painful to get it out of me. Um, but I, I, I know I'm a decent caster. Uh, I, I love the intricacies of the one-handed rod because there are so many variations. Uh, and one day, I would like to do a lesson or a demonstration at a pond, or for a club, or for a shop, that focuses on the technical single-handed spade cast you can do. Because well, didn't all you just write a, I mean, didn't you write a book on it? I did actually. Oh, <laughs> did, did you forget? <laughs> I slipped my mind. <laughs> There's a couple of chapters in there that I that I, I really like. Yeah. Um, so again, my dad taught me this thing, and he had this wonderful way of analysing. And, and naming things. So uh, he first learned to spade cast in Devon. The rivers are small, so you don't use 15 foot 10 weight rods. Who taught him? Uh, I don't know. don't know. Maybe his dad. His dad was a sailor. Maybe he was self-taught. Maybe his physics and math background kind of helped him analyze and practice. And That's a good question, but I don't really have an answer. But he, in, in the latter years of his teaching, when I was working for him, he started to play around with spay casting with a one-handed rod. We, we always did that. A lot of people spay cast one-handed rods. Mm -hmm. But he started to teach and talk about and excite me. And I was young enough that it's always easier to teach young people, you know, how that is. If somebody's an athletic person and they're in that 18 to 25 age, they're pretty good and they pick up stuff real fast. And mm -hmm. so he, he would kind of in some way, and, and I was a tournament caster. My dad did a, dabbled in it tiniest amount just to see what it was like, but never practiced. He was always focused on getting me a better caster. So I spent a lot, a lot of hours trying to be a good caster. So I would be his guinea pig, if you like, for ideas. And he came up with this style of casting he called the Heineken casts, after, named after the beer. And in the early days, in the, in the mid early mid-80s, the Heineken beer had this commercial on TV, and the commercial would be always somebody who is trying to do something and it never works. And they open a kind of Heineken and they pour it into their glass and they drink the Heineken and suddenly they can do this. Thing. Oh, is that how yeah. that works? And it, and the or the perception is that they that, can that, do it. That, yeah. that was, yes, after Heineken. 
Right. Uh, and, the, and the tagline was Heineken refreshes the parts other beers can't reach. Okay. And so my dad was doing these spade casting things and we'd talk about them, we were casting around and, you know, he and I would go out when we didn't have pupils, we would go out and we would just cast and cast and critique each other and try stuff and it was one of those um, casting sessions with a snake roll involved, for example. Uh, anyway, we were casting and he said, well, I wonder if we can do a spay cast underneath that overhanging tree over there. And so instead of, I think it may be a double spay or something like that. So we do a double spay cast and instead of making a forward stroke in a vertical plane, and I don't remember if I did it and he suggested or he did it and, or whatever happened, but then we turned the double spay into a, onto a side plane. We just did, took the side cast and finished the side cast off at the end of a double spay. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you've just done a Heineken cast. So you've got to, your fly gets to a part where no other cast can. He said, oh, it's a Heineken cast. So he started talking about and, and writing down and describing Heineken casts. And, um, and we came up with a, a, a more sensible terminology because we didn't want to get sued by Heineken, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was called cast stringing, just stringing together bits of casts. Okay. And so we would play, once we kind of got the idea of cast stringing, um, he, he would, and I would go down, and I was, I was absolutely obsessed with all this cast stringing because this was such a new world for me to see what you could, what components of a cast you could put, take and put to another one. And I would go down and cast and try all kind of things. And we would count them up. And, and with, when you add all the casts together and all the components of a cast with a one-handed rod, there's something like 108 different spay casts you can perform. Well, what are the casts that you're doing? You've got a single spay, yeah. so double you spay. You have your base casts. But yeah, back then, yeah. back then, what were your casts? The single spay and double spay were the two casts. Okay. Um, the snake roll. Um, Did you invent the snake roll? I did, yeah. yeah. Well, I kind of named it when well, my dad you and I did bugger, it. You wouldn't have offered that, would you have? I have to pull this stuff out of you. You're too humble for your own good, yeah. I think. So tell me... Well, no, I think... You see, a lot of people do snake rolls, and they don't call it a snake roll because they don't know what it is. A snake roll is just like any angler. You're fishing a river, and there's a tree behind you. You've got to make an overhead cast, and so a lot of good anglers will make some kind of move mm-hmm. to get the line there. And yeah. this making some kind of move turned into be a snake roll. Um, my dad saw me doing the fact, in fact, he was, it was one of a filming session. He said, what on earth are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just throwing my line around here. He said, well, that's a good-looking cast. We should name that thing. And I wanted to call it the bacon roll, because <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> or sausage roll, I think it was. It might be sausage roll or bacon roll. I wanted to call it something funny. Me. He said, no, we should call it the snake roll. So I didn't invent the thing. I mean, I... I as far as my dad's concerned, that was the first time he'd seen it. We came up with a name for it. But as I said, I've seen a lot of good casters who've never heard of a snake roll doing that kind of thing. There's nothing new. It evolves out of a need. So single spay and double spay was one. Snake roll eventually became a, a base cast. In the early days, there was a, what's called a cox and kick uh, spay cast. What's that one? Um, it was snap tears. It was an ah. English name for snap tear. A guy in England. In, and he, he was a sage distributor or sage agent in England, and he might have seen it over here when he came over for sage meetings, or he might have invented it. A chap called Gary Coxon started doing this flip thick, and it was called the Coxon Kick after Gary Coxon. And so started teaching this Coxon Kick, and then later we came to know, or maybe it was already known as a Snap Tea, I don't know. I mean, who knows where all this stuff goes. And so even with a one-handed rod, you have these four base casts, and then when you put a hole into them to create a more line speed on the forward stroke, 
that gives you eight potential casts. And then when you take those eight potential casts and then throw them all with a side stroke, that gives you another 16 or whatever the number is, you know, another rotation 16 casts. Are you counting per shoulder too? Uh, yeah, and you can do that left-handed, that's doubles 32. Oh, you mean no pack-handed? No, no, of course what? not. Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> what? You know <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get me to rise up to that bit. All right, so left hand up, right hand up. So uh, that yeah. automatically doubles everything. Yeah, it doubles everything. Wow, that, then, this starts to add up then. Right, yeah, it adds up when you do all these. I mean, if, if you said, you do a left-handed snake roll with a hole yeah, yeah. and put a shepherd's crook in it, turn it on the side, and then a positive curve and an aerial mend. You yeah. know, when you put all those facets together... You have a hundred and, what did you say, eight? hundred and eight, yeah. That is fantastic. Awesome. And there's probably a lot more. Yeah. So it soon expands to this vast range. And that's what I like about this wonderful single-handed spade casting mm-hmm. or casting. So to answer your earlier question, what do you think I'm better at? I think I have more fun with a one-handed rod because I can do all these variations. And um, and still to this day, and that's what the demonstration I'd like to do one day would be just to do a demonstration of cast stringing and just show people. You but, should. You well, really should. That's not. A, I don't think that's an, an, as an instructive as look what I can do. I don't like that kind of demonstration. I think there's merit in it because there's maybe a video would be a better way of doing it. Well, let's I, I talk wrote about it in my that. book. You 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 wrote your book what? There's a whole chapter in the book called Cast Stringing. So it's all about that in a single-handed book about those casts and how they evolved. So I've written about it. Maybe a video would be the way to do it. I don't know. Well, you know that your video that you did. When did you release that video with Rio? The DVD one, the modern spade casting? Yeah. We finished filming in 2005, May 2005. And the reason I remember that, and then I spent the whole summer editing the thing, uh, and then we released it in, I think, September, October, November 2005. Yep, because I bought it as soon as it came out. Did you really? You bet I did. I watched that thing over and over and over again. four hours of hell. I loved (laughs) it. Anyway, keep going. There's a lot of them. Whose idea was it? Jim's. Okay. Yeah. Jim, Jim said, because we'd, we, we'd done an earlier video where it was myself and Jim and a, and a Swede guy called Leif Stavmo. Um, we filmed that in 98. I flew over from England to work on that with Jim. And that proved fairly successful. And with Jim's passion for spade casting and also his desire to create better spay lines and get the, the real word out, he thought one of the best ways was to do this spade casting video. He came up with a thing and he said, right, you, this is your, absolutely your baby. You write the script. We'll get a couple of camera people in. You're going to edit it. Um, he said, I've got a real good friend who's a, who's a really good TV, a good editor. We'll get him involved. Uh, I said, Jim, if, when this happens, there's only one thing I ask. He said, just give me, and I didn't really have any, I had a bit of editing skill because I film a lot of tournaments and um, edit stuff like that, but I didn't have any real editing skill. So just give me the editing job because I know how to teach and I know what not to cut out and what's important mm-hmm. and and if you've seen the DVD you'll see you know, there's certain areas that are highlighted with a little orange line or highlighted with a circle mask or something like that because I know as an ed- as a teacher what should people should be looking at and I wanted that that right in the in the editing to so that people could understand it and I think that's what one of the things that works in the video is these highlights that people are looking at the right yeah, thing. Yeah, they the, were, the, when you would draw the train tracks, yeah, or the train whose tracks idea off. was it to do the, the what is it called, like the kinesial, the... Yeah, so that was um, that? the uh, kinetics, or not kinetics. Um, no, I think it was like a kinetics thing. Yeah, oh, God. It's, it's but it was, it was the slow-mo, and it would slow down, and you yeah. could see just the skeleton, not the skeleton, yeah, but like the, the stick, stick figure. Yeah, so... So one of Jim's friends, um, California, a doc- it was a doctor, um, one of his businesses was... 
who would film professional baseball athletes and strip away all the visuals of ball and body and do these stick figures. And he was mm. a spade caster, Tony. Tony offered, said to Jim, Jim told him we were doing this project, and he said, well, I'll send a crew up, and we'll do the stick figure thing. Kinetics, yeah. I think it is. Kinetics, I think it's what it is. Uh, and we'll spend, send a crew up, and let's film it that way. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing you say that, because now I would say about 60% of people say that that was very beneficial. 40% of people say they've got nothing, didn't see it, couldn't get anything out of it. It I was useless. loved it. Now that I understand casting a little bit better... A lot better from since back then. It helps me out immensely. Well, that was Tony's Tony's idea and um, and Jim's idea. Nothing to do with me. So we put it in the end of every every scene. Yeah. Uh, for all the basic casts. So again, that, that whole thing was written to be an instructive DVD rather than a demonstrative TV DVD. And I think yeah. that's why even now and as I said, it was night. It was May two thousand and five. And the only reason I know that is that we're finishing. We'd filmed done all the filming and most of the filming we did on the Sandy River in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Clackamas River, those were the two rivers we did. And then anything that was missing, when we put kind of looked at everything, we put things together, and already started editing everything, we, there was missing components, we went up in the Box Canyon on, on uh, Henry's Fork above the ranch there, because that's a canyon area with pine trees, and it kind of looks Canadian, kind of looks steely-heady, it looks kind of untrouty, and mm-hmm. that was the nearest thing for us. So we went up there, stayed with Jim's friend uh, Mick, and we finished filming the last day, we went back to Mick's house, and Mick turned on the TV to to relax with a beer and there was this announcement that Liverpool had just been beaten AC Milan in the Champions League final and I <laughs> lost it because I was a, I'm a huge Liverpool fan as yeah. I told you and the lo- and I would videoed the game on you know, we had some video uh, DVR or whatever it was around those days and I just went first of all ecstatically happy because my team had actually won the Champions League which is a huge football game in Europe and then I was so disappointed because I knew the score and I I, was there any point in watching the game afterwards there Uh, so I had all this range of emotions and that's why it was May 2005 that we did the last bit of filming so I'll never forget the date because of that association with that one TV being turned on but it was so successful. Why don't you do another one? I think it's time. I mean, I don't have time to do that. I, I would like, I would res- try and reserve the right to do the editing again. And th- the downside with that is it's going to be a crappy edited thing because I'm not an editor. Mm. Maybe I, maybe it's good to work with an editor. But again, oh, I think it's just time. And we we filmed that. All the filming would have been five days for that video. So we did probably three days filming on the Clackamas and the Sandy. Mm-hmm. And then we did these two days up on on island up in Island Park. So it was only five days of film. It's not a lot of time for the duration that ended up as four hours of film. Mm-hmm. But the editing was seven months. I mean, that was absolutely yeah. seven months of editing. And I and that time, Jim took everything else off my plate and said, you, "Here's your project. Get this finished." And I don't have seven months or two months or, or a week okay. that I could do that in. Just back to Jim. Yeah. So he was still with Rio then. Yes. Yes, because that was May 05, he sold in November 05. Was it really hard when he sold it for you guys? It was a surprise. In one way, it was a good thing. At that time, you know, Jim was a friend. He'd been a friend for a long time. Um, and Jim will say he's, ne- he's never has been and, and never has just been associated as a people person. You know, he goes to the show and bark at people. Get off my booth. Ask a stupid question like that. And, <laughs> you know, he was, he's wonderful in that capacity. But he was like that as a boss as well, and I, I, I recall when we heard the news that Jim was selling it, uh, the, the key real people in those days, and still are there, John Harder, Marlon Roush, Zach Dalton, myself, 
uh, and Tim Moon had just kind of started on, been on for a bit, but the four of us breathed a huge sigh of relief because we said, how close were you to quitting? Very. And all four of us, after talking about it, said all four of us were at the very edge of saying, absolutely had enough of this crap. Um, I probably wouldn't have left because I had nothing else to do, nothing else to go to. And, I, I, and people still ask me, would I go back to the UK and emigrate back to the, or go back to the UK? And I said, yes, in my heart, but probably no, because I, don't, I have no skills in life. I can, te- I can teach fly fishing. And I, have, you know, I left at 16 with no qualifications, so there's nothing to go back to do. You're not uh, flying jet planes. Not flying jet planes. <laughs> okay. If only I'd done that. <laughs> I uh, like that you didn't do that. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, I like that I didn't do that now. <laughs> Who knows what I'd be saying if I had been flying jet planes right now where I'd be sitting, what yeah. I'd be doing. <laughs> different path. Different path. Yeah, absolutely. Different path. Don't follow it. So was it... I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood. So it was miserable working in that environment when... For Jim. For Jim. Because he was a... Okay. Difficult. A bit of a tyrant. <laughs> Got it. You'd have... Made some, you know, a few major fits and things like a lot of bosses do. Typical entrepreneur, very passionate about yeah. his brand. It was his, his money, his brand. Get it right, da di da. Um, very, pretty hard to work with. And and as I said, the four of us all said almost unanimously that we were all going to leave. And I said I probably wouldn't have because I couldn't have done anything else. But right. Jim, John, Mar- I mean John, Marlin, Zach had all easily done other things. So I think selling it was probably a good thing for Rio because it might have just collapsed. I don't think Rio would have survived if those three had left, for right. sure, all at the same time. Did you always aspire to end up doing the marketing and no. being in the position you're at now? No. Do you feel like your talent's wasted? No. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> I, I, I'm bemused that I fall into this marketing position. You know, it, it's... I mean, gosh, people to go to college and university and get degrees in marketing, and, they, and, and I haven't any of that. I mean, I don't know marketing, so I'm, I'm bemused that I am in the marketing position. I understand the brand of Rio, and I think that's why I'm there. I know what Rio, what Rio stands for, and I know what Rio products should be, and I, because I work on a lot of the designs, I, I know the intricacies of the products, which helps me explain them in a catalogue or an ad or a workbook or how to do them. So I think that's why I still... And the marketing person, I don't, I don't, I don't think I enjoy being the marketing person. I mean, there's a lot of it I, I like about the marketing, but I know there's way better people who could market Rio in the in the clearest sense of marketing Rio. And uh, like today, you know, I sitting down in the pub there, and you're showing me all this Instagram thing, and say, oh, I feel like an idiot here. I don't no, know what the hell? No, I mean that's my point. I, I don't know it. So somebody who knows that would be better served doing that kind of thing. But I worry, my heart is pure Rio. I worry that if we get some Harvard marketing degree person comes in with all the whiz-bangs, they might not. And I've seen that with, you know, with other marketing managers come in and great marketing people who don't understand the brand or the, or the industry. And mm-hmm. the direction is lost. So I don't know where it could go. I, I would like to leave the business side of marketing alone and let some expert do the business side of marketing, plotting budgets and choosing which magazines to go in and looking at the ROI of this and that, all abbreviations, I don't know what the hell they mean. And I would quite happily do something like this Australia trip where I go around and promote the brands, carry on doing shows, carry on with line designs and product testing. But I don't think the job is there to do just that. I think you have to have more to offer to the company than just 
a fishing bum <laughs> and get paid for it. Right. <laughs> Are you happier now since you've moved from Idaho to Washington? Yes. Do you feel like your productivity and your contribution to the company has really increased and improved since you've moved? Yes and no. Um, in a selfish way, my, my contentment is much better, much higher. Um, it shows, by the way. You look great. <laughs> thank you very much. So do you. Thanks. Married life. looks great. <laughs> <and yeah. laughs> um, so my contentment has improved, which I think is a good thing. There was lots of things that... Reason, I, I really missed the, the trout fishing in Idaho. You know, the Henry's Fork and the South Fork were fantastic fisheries and great product testing grounds that we could be on in half an hour, 40 minutes, test out lines, fish. I missed the skiing in the winter. There's some fantastic skiing there. So there's a couple, there's a few things I miss. And I, I particularly miss the proximity of working with my colleagues at Rio. Oh, yeah. And so you don't that's, get to do that now. No, I have my own office that I share with a... I don't uh-huh. share an office. I share an office unit with an attorney. Mm-hmm. Very nice chap. Um, but it's not the same as not the same. Zach. Watching you guys together is hilarious. Yeah. Okay, that So it was good when all of us were at Rio, Zach, myself... And the rest of the real boys, because you could just drop into somebody's office and bounce ideas off, and yes. you overhear things and you stay more in touch. So I'm less in touch now, for sure. Zach's moved up to Bainbridge now, so he's in the Seattle, and I'm down in uh, the Vancouver area of, of Washington, and the rest of the real people. So the, the team has split up a bit, and there's certain logistics that hasn't made that work out. And I know that my, my overall boss, Tag, uh, he would love to have the whole marketing team all in one roof together in Bainbridge. I think that would also help the marketing and the productivity and the, the creation of ideas and stuff like that because he oversees the Josh who's the Reddington marketing manager and will be the new Sage marketing manager or brand manager as we're now called uh, and the rest of the marketing team are all there so it'd be good to bounce ideas off and be together so there are definitely problems with me being where I am but I like my life where I am. You're a tough podcast for me because everybody else wants to know about fly lines and I really don't care about fly lines. I mean, I do. I love fly lines. I love talking about tapers and different materials and all that jargon. But hmm. you are more interesting to me than something I can find in a catalog. That said, not everybody uh, shares the same viewpoint as I do. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you just a couple questions about fly lines. Oh, okay. As interesting as they are. What are the... T- <laughs> <laughs> So dumb, I'm sorry. Um, Okay, top three questions that people ask you about fly lines. Well, here in Australia, a really interesting question, interesting in that you don't hear it very often, is, so where are double tapers? People are asking that. So where are double tapers these days? Why are there no double tapers made? Mm -hmm. More people have asked that than any other series of talks I've done. Which is very, I find quite an interesting perspective. Great question. I mm. can't wait to hear the answer because I'll tell you honestly, I love double tapers. <laughs> <laughs> you me too? too? That's all I fish with a one-handed rod. So tell me why. Why are double tapers gone then? Uh, are they, they gone? Are no. they gone? Well, they're not. They're certainly not gone. I mean, I think every company, certainly Rio, as long as I work at Rio, we will never drop double tapers because I fish them too much and I'll stand and fight to the bitter end to keep a double taper somewhere in the product line. Mm-hmm. We have, in the trout world, we might have 10 different lines that are designed in the premium series for trout. Only one would be a weight forward, uh, sorry, double taper, and the rest would be weight forward. So there's a much bigger percentage of lines on the shelf for weight forward than double tapers. Just because they sell better? Because you can do things to them. You could with double tapers, too. I have, as much as I don't like to say it, I have a fascinating talk on fly lines that people tend to say, 
Ah, was extraordinary. Uh, and even last night when we had this VFA thing and they had this talk with these all these elderly um, Victorian fishermen, not Victorian from the era, but from Victor- Victoria. Is that like we are, Victoria? <laughs> yeah, we're Victoria, yeah. <laughs> um, fishermen, uh, people fly fish a long, long time. And, and they, they, at the end of it, they, they said, I did not think I could sit in for an hour's talk on fly lines. But they were absolutely fascinated by it. And I tell people, just the, the fly lines are a story. And I said that every shape of fly line is a character in a story. And you should be able to know every character intimately to know what it's going to do in the story. And fly lines, to me, are, are, are characters in a story. And the double taper is one of the characters in the story. And double tapers have gone by the by purely because weight forwards, I think, are just the easy... Give me a five-weight five line, a uh, five-weight rod, what do you need? Oh, you need a five-weight line. Yeah, here's a five-weight line. And, and most shop employees are going to reach for a weight forward. Not many casters are going to get the full benefit of a double taper line, so you need to be a better caster to cast a double taper line, certainly to get the distance of a weight forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, weight forwards originated because they were the easiest way to get distance by shooting that thin running line. Mm-hmm. So they became easier lines to cast, therefore they are going to be more accepted when they're sold, so the person who buys a line doesn't go to the fly shop and say, oh, do you sold me a line I can't cast? And, mm-hmm. and so weight forwards evolve, weight forwards become popular. And at the very first talk we did here, we had this question, and I asked Pat Levy, our, our distributor here, to find out. And so he rang the warehouse, and they did a little analysis of sales, and they said, if you sell 100 lines in Australia, 90 of them are weight forward, and 10 are double tapers. Okay. I said, that's an interesting statistic. I would say in America, 95 are weight forwards, and 5 would be double tapers. Way, way smaller than that. I'd be surprised if 5%. I would be gobsmacked if it was 2% were double tapers. They're just not sold. And I think they're not sold because weight forwards now are in a position where they're easier to cast, and therefore they're in the right sell for, for most casters. So when I, I talk about, do my fly line talks and I talk about double tapers, the biggest attribute a double taper has is that without running line, a caster can make, for example, a 70-foot cast. And, you, and I don't need to explain the benefits to you, just for the sake of listeners. A caster can make a 70-foot cast to a rising fish, float their dry fly over that rising fish, and fly. the fish doesn't take the fly in, the fly passes the fish, goes a couple of feet past it with a double taper, and a good casting skill, an angler can just pick up that 70 feet, lay it down in front of that fish again, refloat it. And with a weight forward, very few weight forwards have a head length longer than about 45 feet, maybe 48 feet, but very few. That's really pushing it, yeah. It's really pushing it. So to make the same 70-foot cast, that person is going to have to pull in 20 feet of running line and then shoot that 20 feet of line running line back out to the fish again, mm-hmm. which means, A, you're wasting a lot of fishing time by stripping it in, B, your chances of being controlling a distance are much slimmer because with a double taper, if you've got the right length and you float over a fish, you've got the right length. You just pick it up and you're a fixed length. You cast and cover that every time. Now you're shooting weight forward. You might shoot it two inches less. You might shoot it six inches more. So a double taper is so much more controllable than that. That That is what I say is the biggest advantage of a double taper is that you can control line at a much greater range. And then I flip it on, people on, the, on the head and, tell, and say to people, so what is the advantage of a weight forward? The only advantage of a weight forward has, if you were to take identical tapers of a double taper and weight forward, and they're not, because as I said, like if you had ten lines, nine of them would be weight forwards, and they'd all have different profiles and shapes and tapers and weight distribution and stuff. So if you were to take identical da- double taper and weight forward with the front end, the only advantage a weight forward has is if you get to the running line. 
because then you can shoot it. And if that head is that 45 feet head, and you're fishing 20 foot line, small creeks, 25 feet, 30 feet, then wait for it has no advantage because you're never on the running line. So why don't you get a double taper? And why do you get a double taper? Why do you get a weight forward? You're not getting to the running line. And one of the reasons is that the weight forwards have much more intricate tapers. You can have so many different tapers. And one guy last night's talk was saying, oh, the reason you have a double taper is because you get much better presentation. And I said, well, that's nonsense. So I could design a double taper to have absolutely the shittiest presentation in the world. And I could design a weight forward to have Anyone could design weight forward to have the finest presentation you'll ever see in your life. It's nothing to do with the profile of the line, it's just how the tapers have evolved from that line. So it's conceived that the double taper gives you the best presentation, da-di-da. But once you, I'm just thinking, because what you were saying about having a stripper line, that's the mm. equivalent to a long belly line, yes. or even a mid-belly line yeah. to, no, it's a long belly line versus a scandy line, yes. for example. Yeah. Ultimately... Am I wrong in saying that you're going to be able to maintain or be able to achieve further distance with a double taper line? If you're a very good cast, yes. I mean, some of the best tournament casters I know have gone away from the tournament-type weight-forward lines. Like we produce a line called the Tournament Rio Gold. It's a mm. weight-forward five line with 75-foot head, so you can carry 75 feet of it in the air and then shoot your running line. But great casters like down here in, in Malaysia is a... a, a an English guy called Paul Arden who travels around. He's one of the mm-hmm. best casters I've ever seen. I don't know if you know Paul. Mm-hmm. But I know of Paul, yeah. So he carried, and, and so, for example, he used double tapers because he can aerialize 85 or 90 foot of it and then use it as a shooting head. You're already 90 feet out there instead of 45 feet out there, which you might be with a standard weight forward. Or, so you're already that far out. But you have to be an unbelievably good caster to carry yeah. that amount of line. So it does tie in with casting skill. Makes sense. Um, so I have a question then. Mm. Do you think that there, and this is just devil's advocate, but do you think that maybe the reason why Way Forward is so popular is because the fly shop guys and because a lot of instructors are selling it and marketing it as being the line that everybody needs? Yeah. Is it a marketing thing? I don't think it's a conscious marketing thing. Do you know where I th- I'm going with this? No. If you believe that the consumer would benefit from using a double taper line and you have the marketing role at your fingertips, have you thought about trying to have some sort of campaign to educate the consumer on that? No, yes and no. Um, briefly, but I think, I, 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 think it's, um, I think it's a romantic idea okay. that I just don't think the majority of casters are good enough to cast double taper, and so they try it out, and it will probably fail, or they won't cast as well as they did with their way forward, and so the campaign dies. Yes, you could. I think you could do it with a video to show what happens. But again, it's, you've got to be a good enough caster for that to happen. And, and most people aren't a good enough caster for that to happen. That's a fair answer. What about number two? What's the second question that you get? And I won't elaborate. Cause number I'm... two. Usually how to care for a fly line. How long should a fly line last? And how do you look after it? Is that a good question? Great question. <laughs> it is. Um, so a fly line should last, in terms of hours, and, and that the easiest way to do is think about hours of usage. So a fly line should last about 400 hours of use. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we put out there. That's a, That would be a good line duration for a, a Cortland Rio essay, whatever, it doesn't matter. That would be a good duration. So about 400 hours of usage. So to a guide who's on the river 200 days a year and he's fishing 10 hours a day for example and he's fishing 2,000 hours in a year 
he's going to go through five fly lines a year mm-hmm. at that 400-hour thing. And yet to the average person who might make one trip or two trips a year and that's it, that could be a 10-year fly line. So about 400 hours is, is what we tend to quote as a realistic life expectation of a fly line. And you can extend it, absolutely extend it, if you clean it up a little bit and um, take care of it, wipe off the dirt, and you re-lubricate it with some dressings and things like that. You could extend the line to 500 hours. Right. A lot of people don't take care of the line. You know, it's a throwaway society. I'm afraid, fortunately, people don't take care of stuff and... I'm as guilty as anyone because I know where to get another fly line. Right. <laughs> and, but if you, if you take care of your line, you will extend the life. But 400 hours is probably a good realistic lifespan of a fly line, okay. of Let's usage. Third, last question. I don't know if there's any... Those are the ones that just come up fairly frequently. Um, I have one for you. Oh, what would yours be? Is it true that it only costs like $2 to actually make a fly line and the rest of the money goes into R&D and marketing? No. So what is the My actual gosh, equation no. to this? Because that's what you hear all the time. I actually, $2. to be totally honest, I'm being generous. I've heard people say, it costs two cents to make a fly line, and the rest of the money is in R&D. So uh, what is the math on that? Well... Without going into... Ex- oh, know, yeah, sure. And, and, the you, um, so to give you... A, to put into perspective, most fly lines these days, as you know, have a welded loop on the front end or the back end. So the amount of time it takes... When a fly line's made, a fly line in, in our machinery runs at a speed of about 10 feet per minute. Mm-hmm. So, a 100-foot fly line takes about 10 minutes to make. That takes way longer than I thought yeah, it was going to most people take. think it's seconds. So, in horizontal extrusion, which are lines made on polymers like polyethylene polyurethane, those will run through much faster. They can run at 100 feet a minute. There's different reasons why you'd use one over the other, mostly about taper control, how accurate you can control tapers. So the 10 feet per minute, a 100-foot line takes 10 minutes to, to manufacture. So in the simplest terms, one of the lessons I've learned over here coming to America, quite different from the UK, is that the cost of a line is based on how many can you make in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. If you can make a nice easy number, let's say you make 100 in 24 hours, and your 24-hour expenses of electricity and rent and wages and every single facet that you pay out mm-hmm. is a hundred dollars then your cost is a dollar a line or a dollar a product and if your cost is two hundred dollars and you only make a hundred lines then your cost is two so the quantity of lines made divided by the daily output of money is your base price if you like so that's why lines that get shorter, get cheaper, because you can make more lines in a given time than the long lines. The longer lines are more expensive because they take longer to make. That makes perfect So that's a really good analysis. Um, But to go back to your $2, uh, as a very rough, loose guideline, if you put a welded loop on the front end, it adds so many components to it. After the lines are coiled, it's going to be prepared and tucked and welded and recoiled. There's a lot of things a, a well goes through. So every loop adds about $5 retail to a fly line's price. Seriously? That's yeah. how much? Retail, yeah. Wow, okay. I had so, no idea. So how Just when ask. you've got two yeah. loops on there, yeah, that's $10 of retail cost right there with the, line, with the loops. And a lot of people say, well, I would rather have no loops and the line would be $10 less. Unfortunately, again, this society in this day and age seems to want the easiest possible solution to everything. And if you have two lines and one's got welded loops and one doesn't have welded loops, people go for the welded loop because it's easy enough to loop it on. 
And so lions have those loops on. Yeah, because I remember when they did not yeah. have those loops no. on. No, we all remember that. Yeah. And I put on Brady loops before that, and then uh, before that it was needle, needle, needle knots. And Well, the loops have made them so dang easy these days, especially with perfection loops in the end of leaders. Seconds, as you know, just to put on a leader and start yeah. fishing. So it's a nice, simple way of attaching and people like simple I'm really happy I asked yeah that's a good question well, now I know do you have anything you want to add <sighs> no um, I need to switch roles now do the, the same the to next you question is, about the, it. the next question is do you have anything that you want to ask me <laughs> <laughs> we don't have an hour and a half no I'm not going to give you an hour and a half <laughs> yeah. I just always like to end it with that in case I've uh, in case there's something you need to know just when the heck am we going to see you? When are you going to be come and visit us again? June. See the family. You yeah. will. I'll come back in June for sure. Well, that. And we will continue this conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> my usual room. Is it mine now? It's your room. Yes. <laughs> I have a bottle of whiskey waiting. Uh, yeah. I've never seen you drink Jack. <laughs> no. It was nice to bring you down to my level tonight. I Thank had you. the ice in it to drink it. You looked like you were in a little bit of pain. I... I I grimaced at the first sip, and then I accepted it. <laughs> okay. All right, 10 minutes to Liverpool. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in again soon.